Hi, this is Pastor Paul Jay Chandran. Welcome to Life Church Castle Hill podcast. I pray that the Lord will speak to you through the Word of God. We believe that when we open the pages of Scripture, we not only get a message from the Word of God, but we also encounter the God of the Word. May you encounter the God of the Word and may your life be transformed from the inside out. God bless you. Enjoy this message. Given Himself to us so that in turn, we now live for His glory. So mighty God, give us grace to comprehend this and to apply this. We give you all the glory, praise, and honor in Jesus' name. And the people of God said, Amen and Amen. So the series is titled, A Joyful Letter from Lockdown. And today we're going to study from Philippians chapter 1 and verses 1 to verses 11. And I want to title this morning's sermon as Gospel-Centered Joy. Gospel-Centered Joy. I want to take you uh, take a step back and give you the overview of the book of Philippians. If I want to summarize this book, I want to give you three things to take note of. One, it is an unique book. It is a unique book. Number two, it is an unusual story. And number three, it is an uncommon experience. Why is it a unique book? Because in this book, Apostle Paul doesn't address any doctrinal errors or any ethical perversion that is present in the church. So here is a book that he is writing to his beloved saints in Philippi, a church that he pioneered, and he's writing a letter of thanksgiving. See, the Philippian church have heard that Paul is in prison, and they're wondering how his mental state is. Is he depressed? Is he doing okay? And they know that he could possibly face death sentence. So they're wondering what happened to the gospel. And Paul had been in prison for a long time. So they're concerned. So they sent a messenger by the name of Ephraphroditus. And he brought help from Philippi to Paul in prison. And along the way, he became very ill. And that also caused distress to Paul. And so Paul writes a letter of thanksgiving for the love and the partnership that the Philippian church had given to him all these years. So it's a joyful letter. It is a letter of thanksgiving. And you will hear the apostle minister to his people, not as a missionary, but as a friend. The second one is, it's an unusual story. It is an unusual story because of how the church started. Paul was ministering in Asia, and God laid hold of Paul and quickly moved him to Europe. And the main city in Europe that God planted the first church in Europe was in the city of Philippi. So it is an unusual story of how God moved him. We are going to look at it later in detail. And thirdly, it is an uncommon experience. The first converts of this church. How does a church start when a group of people come together in the name of Christ? And here, the first converts, the three first converts that are recorded for us was an Asian sales lady, a Greek slave girl and a Roman jailer. In their ethnicity, they were different. In their background and experiences of life, they were so different. But yet, in the, in the body of Christ, they became one body, and they became a part of the church of Philippi. So it is an uncommon experience. So I want to take a step back and take you to the book of Acts to help you understand some of these things that I just talked about, how it is an unusual story. In Acts chapter 15 and verse 39 and verse 40, the Bible says there was a sharp disagreement between Barnabas and Paul. They were on a missionary journey together and suddenly there was a sharp disagreement and they both split ways. They parted ways. And the Bible says in verse 39 that Mark was with, Mark accompanied Barnabas and in verse 40, Paul chose Silas and they both went on two different mission trips. Now, I want you to see this picture. Even in the midst of a, a, a painful situation, God was bringing something of his greater purpose. And in Acts chapter 16, you find in the first 12 verses, you see how Paul reached out to uh, Asia along with Silas and Timothy was added into the family. And then on, on to, uh, I want you to pay, pay attention to verse 6. Because from verse 6, I want you to see how this church in Philippi got started. I want, to take, I want you to take down three things about what I'm about to say next. See, how does the church get started? It starts because of the work of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of people, isn't it? 
And I want to give you three things to write down. One, it's the restraint of the Spirit. Number two, it is the release of the Spirit. And thirdly, it is the results of the Spirit. See, the church plant is always the result of the work of the Spirit of God. And here, the restraint of the Spirit. Look at verse 6. Paul was in Asia. Look at it in verse 6. And they went through the region of Phygeria and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. I want you to circle that word forbidden by the Holy Spirit. Look at the next verse. It says, the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. That's the restraint of the Spirit. You know, if you truly want to walk in the will of God, like Apostle Paul. Apostle Paul had this freedom to keep doing the work of God. He just kept going into the mission of God. See, God doesn't direct a person who is not moving and already involved in the will of God. God directs your step as you're already taking bold steps of faith towards the trajectory, towards the direction that his word is pointing you towards. So this is key for us to understand as principle of spiritual guidance, that this is how God guides us, that as a GPS will navigate you, as soon as you start to drive, God will navigate you. He will intervene when you're outside of the will of God and try to stop you. In my own life, I, years ago, I remember when I applied for Bible college all over the world, literally. And God, through the opening and closing of doors, through the provision of funds, through the provision of a scholarship and all that, through the supernatural means and also through a confirmation, a prophetic word in my own heart, God confirmed that it's not uh, any other nation, but this tiny nation in Asia called Singapore. It is through the restraint of the spirit that I ended up there because that was not my first choice to go for a Bible college or for a first choice as a nation to go to. But I'm thankful to the Lord for what he does. The second is, not only there is a restraint of the spirit, there is a release of the spirit. The Bible says Paul had a vision from a, a, a man appeared to him in a vision and God gives them this vision and a man was calling to him to come and minister in Macedonia. And taking this as a call of God, they went from where they were in Asia and they set their course towards Macedonia, which is in Europe. And as they started to go, verse 12 says, from there they finally reached Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in the city some days. I want you to circle a couple of key things here. Philippi, where does the name Philippi come from? It comes from the name Philip, Philip II of Macedon. He's the father of Alexander the Great. And he's the one who founded the city and he occupied the city so that Rome can have a colony there. And it's a strategic place because it is a place that connects between Europe and Asia. And not only Rome wanted a colony there, God wanted his colony to be there, a heavenly colony through the planting of a local church in that city. And God moved Paul fast to go there so that a church can be planted. And in Acts chapter 16, you will find the first three converts coming together, an Asian sales lady called Lydia, a woman of means, a Greek slave girl who was demonized and she had a demon possession and, and how God, set, how God uh, set her free. And the jailer who was looking after Paul and Silas in prison, how, his, how he came to the gospel gloriously. You'll read that in Acts chapter 16. But as I want to bring this to a close, in, in terms of giving you the background, I want you to understand a principle of divine guidance. Go with me to Isaiah chapter 30 and verse 21. The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 30 and verse 21, And your ears shall hear a word behind you, saying, This is the way, walk in it. When you turn to the right or when you turn to the left. See, when you are already walking, there is a year that, that God speaks through to your year behind you. In other words, there is a prompting, there is a direction that he gives you specifically. And this is what I want you to be encouraged. If you're seeking the will of God, always know this, that God will give you grace. You, will of God is not a complex thing that you cannot understand. As long as you're obedient to the word of God and you want to walk in the ways of God and do the work of God, God will intercept your life and he will reveal to you the specific steps you are to make in certain situations. God bless you. Hallelujah. The overall theme of this book of Philippians is Jesus Christ. Because the word, when I look at some of the words that are repeated, this is what I found. The word Jesus Christ, Jesus or Christ or Jesus Christ appears 39 times. And the first chapter alone, 18 times. The word joy appears 14 times. 
the word thinking or thought or mind appears 11 times. And the word gospel appears nine times, and especially in the chapter one, six times. So I want you to capture this. See, many times you hear that this book is only about joy. But joy has to be rooted and grounded in something of great value and certainty. And that is Christ Jesus. He's our loving Savior. And that is why in the first episode itself, in the first chapter itself in this episode, Apostle Paul writes about Christ about 18 times. And the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ about six times. And I want you to capture this because that's what you will find as you go into this book. As I said to you, Jesus Christ is the overall theme of this letter. Let me give you four things as I summarize the four chapters. Christ is the message, chapter one. Chapter two, Christ is the model. He tells us to emulate Christ Jesus, the same humility that he had, the same servanthood that he had. In other words, Christ is the message in chapter one. Christ is the model in chapter two. And Christ is our motive in chapter three. And chapter four deals with Christ is our means. In other words, he's the one who gives us strength to do the will of God. Hallelujah. So Christ is our message, our model, our motive, and our means. And I want you to capture this. Let's go to chapter one and verse one and verse two. This is a personal greetings that from, pa from Paul, apostle, to the church in Philippi. But I want you to pay attention to three things that I'm going to say to you from this text that I want you to capture this. Know who you belong to. And secondly, know why you're special. And thirdly, know what he brought into your lives. Look at this. Know who you're living for. The Bible says in, in first verse, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. I told you already that this whole book has a repeated a number of times the word Jesus and Lord and Christ, isn't it? And here, even in this first verse, you see it. We are servants of Christ Jesus. We are saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. And then he says, grace and peace to you from our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Know who you're living for. Paul uses this word doulos, servants of Christ Jesus. It is that same word that he will use for Christ Jesus in chapter 2, that he came to leave us a model of servanthood. And Paul says, you and I, we belong to Christ. See, when a believer comes to faith in Christ, the first thing that happens to us is that we belong to someone. We are in the family of God. And because we belong to someone, we have a king over us. We have a master over us. We have a Lord over us. And we are thankful to the Lord Jesus Christ. And here he says, we are servants. So Paul and Timothy's servants, they're writing to the saints in Philippi. See, this is how many times we would, would probably want to read it. Saint Paul writing to the servants in Philippi. But Paul says, I'm the servant, servant of Christ, but I'm writing to saints in Philippi. And saints in Christ Jesus, long before you live in a city, you live in Christ Jesus. That's why I want to acknowledge that we are Christians first, that we live, that we live in Sydney or live in Australia or live in the country where God has placed you. That's why we always say this, the kingdom of God is like this. We, we, the kingdom of God, there is a king and we live as God's people in God's place under God's rule, isn't it? We live in God's we live as God's people in God's place, wherever God has placed us, under God's rule. And so here he mentions that there, you know who you belong to. You belong to Jesus Christ. Not only that, know why you're special, because you are a saint in Christ Jesus. You're not a saint because you performed well. You're not a saint because you lived a perfect life. You are in Christ Jesus. And that is something that will come, keep coming back in this gospel, in this gospel-centered uh, episode. And thirdly, he says, what did he bring to you? He brought to you grace and peace. What is grace? Grace is undeserved, unearned merit of God, favor of God. That means it's unmerited favor, unearned favor, undeserved favor. And God says, I'm showing you grace, something that you don't deserve. And secondly, because of his grace, we receive peace from God. In other words, we receive peace with God as well as we receive his peace into our lives in every aspect. That's the word in the, in the Greek, it's Irene, and it's in, in Hebrew, it will be the word shalom, nothing missing, nothing broken. 
And so with this introduction, he brings us into the body of text that we're going to look at from verse 3 to verse 11. And in verse 3 to verse 11, Paul is praying and Paul is giving thanksgiving to the Lord. And I want you to capture this with me because here is a man who is writing from prison. But this pages of this episode oozes with joy. So I want to ask ourselves this question, how is joy possible in Paul's life? Why, why is he so filled with joy? Why is he filled with joy? And here in verses 1 to verses 11, here we will find this. Where did Paul find joy? He found joy in three things that I'm going to say to you. Number one, he, Paul found joy in the supplication which was personally enriching. That is from verse 3 to verse 5. And then the anticipation which, which was personally encouraging in verse 6. And the association which was personally endearing from verse 8 to verse 11. And I want you to catch these three things. The supplication, the anticipation, and the association. Look at how Paul explains this. Look at it in verse 3. The Bible says in verse 3, Paul writes, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Paul is sitting in prison and he's thinking about the Philippian church. And he says, in all my remembrance of you, I thank my God. Hallelujah. And next verse, verse 4 says, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. I want you to capture this little word all is repeated so many times here. Look at it in verse 3. It says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. And then in verse 4, in every prayer, all the time that I pray, I pray for all of you and I make prayer with joy. Hallelujah. And I want you to capture this. The reason why he was so filled with joy in lockdown. And this joy was based upon, the, uh, based upon this relationship that he has with them. And because he recollects good memories that he has with them. He says, I remember. Every time I remember. See, one of the things that you and I, we need to understand is, even though he addresses the people as saints, you and I know that we are saints and we live among saints. <clears throat> and yet many times, people are not saintly, isn't it? They don't live like saints. You know, one man of God said it like this, to dwell about with the saints we know, that is grace and glory. To dwell below with the saints we know, that's another story. I always say this to you that people always are nice from far, but they are far from nice. In other words, we, in the church, you have things that are messy. People who have uh, certain impure motives. People who are insincere. But in the midst of all that Paul would have experienced, Paul still remembers the church and he says, I give thanks to all all of you. I give thanks to the Lord for all of you. Why? Because he's recollecting only those things that are good. Hallelujah. And that is why there is a joy in his life. And he says, I pray to God. I give thanks to God. And when I'm praying, I'm praying with joy. So in my supplication, I'm supplicating with joy. And that was personally enriching to Paul. Hallelujah. You know, one of the things that you and I, we need to pay attention to is this. Who are the people that God has placed in our world? You know, as Pastor Isa and I, as we go through this COVID season, one of the things we fondly bring to memory is all the good things that God has been doing in the lives of our people. And we give thanks to the Lord for that. And sometimes we go through the database and we look at the faces because we have photos of people and we look at their faces, the families, the children, and we thank God for each of them. And we pray that the Lord's work will continue in their life. And this is something that we do. And here I understand that Paul <clears throat> is writing to the Philippian church and he says, you guys are the ones that I'm praying for. Why? Because in a, pop, in a pastor's life, let me give you some hint. In a pastor's life, the joy that a pastor has is his people. Do you know that? Look at what the Bible says in Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 19. The Bible says, for what is our hope or joy, a crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? Is it not you? I want you to circle that. Is it not you? In other words, Paul was saying to the Thessalonian church, you guys are our boasting before God. You are the reason for our joy before God. Because God is doing so much work in you and we are thankful and grateful and we fill our hearts with good memories and recollect those memories and we give thanks to the Lord. In other words, Paul learned the art of overlooking people's faults and failures and now he is rejoicing at the good memory that he has of them and he's praying with joy for his people. Hallelujah. And as a pastor, I can give you this one thing. 
What is the joy that we have in ministry? It is when we hear people are blessed through our ministry. Not only people who just say we are blessed, but their lives are supernaturally transformed. See, transformation of life. So when I look at a family, that family joined the church and over the course of this last few years or maybe the many years that they have journeyed with us, that there is a maturity that has happened. There is a transformation that has happened. There is a character change. There's a value shift. There's a worldview that has changed. All these things, when we look at it, we rejoice. So it is not just a mere exchange of pastor, thank you for your ministry. I enjoyed your sermon. That's not what we are, what we are here for. We want to see life change and real evidence of life change. And people walking in the truth. That is what brings joy to a pastor. And this is what Apostle John, when he wrote in 3 John and verse 4, look at what he says in 3 John and verse 4. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Hallelujah. So what gives great joy to a group leader? What gives great joy to a pastor or a minister of the gospel? It is to see that the work of the gospel is happening in the hearts of people. That the word that God has deposited in our hearts is going to your hearts. It's doing the same work of transformation in my life. And I see the same work of transformation in your life. And I give glory to God and praise to God. Hallelujah. I want to take a moment and thank the Lord for the work that he is doing in our midst, even in the midst of this lockdown. For the last four and a half months, we have been able to come into your homes with the word of God. And I'm thankful to report that there are, we are hearing many testimonies of the goodness of God, the grace of God in how God is working in the hearts of people. And I'm thankful that the word of God is having its way in your life. Can we give the Lord a clap offering? Hallelujah. We give you, Lord. We give you all the glory, praise, and honor. Hallelujah. So the real life change is what brings us real joy. And here, Paul when he's recollecting these things, he's praying for them and he's praying with joy. I want you to capture this church. Maybe you're going through a situation right now that is bleak and dark. Stop looking at your own situation and stop just licking your own wounds and start thinking about others and start praying for others. Because when you start to pray for others, your world expands. Your heart begins to move with compassion for others. I always say this to the church. Sometimes there are people who go through paper cut experience and they crumble like a $2 suitcase. Sometimes there are people who are going through a hand being chopped off and yet they are strong in their faith and they can face that adversity because they are rooted and grounded in the Lord. But I want you to capture this. You and I, we need to develop that perspective of praying for others. And when you pray for others, you are enriched in your own life. The Bible says in Job chapter 42 and verse 10, the Lord restored the fortunes of Job. You know, when he did that, the Bible says, when he had prayed for his friends. God wants us to pray for one another. He uses that as a means to bring salvation into the lives of people. So you and I, we need to know that it's not just beneficial for them to receive our prayer, but it's also beneficial for us when we pray for others because we expand our heart to really have the heart of God and to be compassionate and prayer with joy. Hallelujah. That's the first thing that I find in this. The second thing is in verse 5. The verse 5, he says, because of your partnership in the gospel from the beginning until now. Because of your partnership. Circle that word partnership. It is the word koinonia in the Greek. The word koinonia is this partnership. Many times we look at that word koinonia, we always say it is fellowship. What is fellowship? Two fellows on a ship. That means you're, you're going in the same direction. You're about the same purpose. You're filled with the same purpose. But the deeper word of fellowship is partnership. See, sometimes fellowship conjures up this image that you bring a coffee and I bring biscuits and we just talk about, chit-chat about life. And we, talk, we call that a fellowship. But it's much more richer than that. What is it? It is a partnership in the work of the ministry. It is a partnership in the purpose, in the redemptive purpose of God. And here Paul reminds uh, himself of the partnership that the Philippian church has played right from day one until that time. Hallelujah. How did they partner with Paul? Look at Philippians chapter 4 and look at verse 15 and verse 16. He talks about this. He says, and you Philippians yourselves know that I'm in the, in the beginning of the gospel when I left Macedonia. No church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. 
I want you to circle those two words, giving and receiving. What did Paul give them? The gospel. What did they give Paul? They sowed back in resources. They prayed for him. They supported him. And in verse 16, the Bible says, even in Thessalonica, you send me help for my needs once and again. That means more than once, Paul received help from them in Thessalonica alone. And when Paul was writing in the, in the, in to a, a book to Corinthian church, look at what he says in, in Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 9. And when I was with you and I was in need, I did not burden anyone for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. I want you to circle that word, supplied my need. You know why? The brothers that came from Macedonia, where's Macedonia? Macedonia is the region and the leading city in that region is Philippi. So it's the Philippian church that had sent one more time help and supplied the needs of the man in prison. Supplied the needs of the man who is pioneering the work of gospel in many places. And I want you to capture this church. That is the partnership that sometimes God takes the person with means. Maybe in the Philippian church, it was the woman, the Asian sales lady, Lydia. Because she was a seller of purple goods. Maybe she was a woman of means, a woman of substance. And she partnered with Paul. And from day one, she's been supporting his ministry by giving and receiving. What a joy it is. And as a pastor, when I'm thinking through this, you know, I, I, I'm filled, my heart is filled with some uh, personal memories of how God has uh, send people at the right time to be a help in my uh, formative years of ministry, even in this country. I remember very clearly, you know, uh, the first time I went before the Lord and I said, Lord, um, after my sermon, people do ask, do you have a recording? Uh, can we listen to this again? And this was in the year 2000 and I didn't have any recording device. So I went to the Lord. I was praying for a laptop. I said, Lord, I can't afford it because at that time I wasn't employed by any church and I was, um, and we were living with whatever God provided. And here in that season, I remember very clearly one, one man rang me and said, can we have coffee? So we went and had coffee at McDonald's and he shared with me that, uh, is there anything that I can particularly do to help you in this? Uh, maybe you need a laptop or maybe you need something uh, for ministry. Let me know. And just prior to that, this is what had happened. There is a shop in, the, in, in a shopping center nearby called shop Castle, Castle Towers. There is a shopping, uh, in that shopping center, there was a shop called Gateway. And uh, that Gateway Computers, I had gone into that shop quite a few times in the past week. And I had laid hands on some of the uh, laptops, look at all the specifications, and finally arrived at what I wanted so that this is what it will help me to capture and record, edit, and then put it on uh, internet back in the year 2000. And cut the long story short, when this man asked me, and he said, uh, maybe a laptop, I said, yes, laptop. You mentioned laptop, that's what I need. And he said, do you know what you want? I brought him to that shop, and he paid for it. It was 5,500 in the year 2000. It was a lot of money for me back then. And I'm so thankful to the Lord that God knits the hearts of people with means to come and meet the gospel need. Listen to me carefully. That is how our God works. He takes someone with means and he brings them into the pathway of the gospel ministry. Not only people who live near us, even people who are far away from us. I remember uh, during those years, I was asking the Lord, Lord, I have all this latent energy. I want to spend it for the gospel work. And through divine appointment, God opened a door for me to be on satellite radio, ministering to the Tamil-speaking world in Sydney, Melbourne, and Canberra. And it was a, a Tamil radio station that had given me an opportunity. And I said, Lord, but I need these devices to record. Uh, now I need something different because I have to make it program and send it to them. And I said, Lord, I need this. Right at that moment, we received a check in the mail. Um, it, was, it was more like a bank check from a person who lives in America who wrote a detailed letter to say, I have been praying for you and this is what the Lord laid in my heart that our ministry needs and wrote a check for 2,500 uh, US dollars that was able to buy all that first recording studio that I ever built. I want you to listen to me carefully. This is how God works. And when we came to a building project as a church, we raised money and, uh, and there was a shortfall about 1.2 million. And I went before the Lord and said, Lord, I went to the bank and the bank says it's about 9% interest. 
and we didn't want to pay 9% interest, but Lord, would you please help me to go in to purchase this without drawing on a bank loan? Oh, how the Lord works. I receive a, a phone call from a friend of mine who says there is going to be a check in the mail and that check is for 1.2 million. And this is an interest-free loan. If you want to uh, take your time to repay this, but if you can um, pay in within seven years, you can. But there was no collateral sign. There was nothing but a check came from an overseas nation to my office for 1.2 million. I tell you what, that's how God works. He puts in the hearts of people to partner with the gospel. And I want you to think about this. That's how we send missionaries overseas. That's how we work with missions organizations. That's why even as a church here in Sydney, we support organizations not only within, within our own nation, but in the nations of the world. Why do we do that? Because people, God always unites people with means and, 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 and people who are doing the work of ministry. And this is the reason why there is a partnership. And Paul said, I find joy in this partnership that you have brought into my life. Look at this. I want to pay attention to this word koinonia. It appears three times in this short episode. Hallelujah. In chapter 1 and verse 5, you read koinonia. He's talking about soul winning together. He's talking about service together. So it is the partnership of service. In chapter 2 and verse 1, he talks about a partnership in the spirit. He says in the participation in the spirit. That's the word partnership. So now he, has, he says, what is the partnership with the Spirit? It is to supplicate with one another. That means you're praying for one another, being moved by the Spirit. You have empathy and you have affection and you're praying for one another. And thirdly, he says in verse 10 of chapter 3, he says, there is a share in his sufferings. There is a sacrifice together. There is a partnership of uh, service. There is a partnership of supplication and a partnership of suffering. And I want you to capture these three things because that is the richness of this word koinonia. It is not just coming and having coffee and tea together and chit-chat and say, God bless you, the weather is nice and you're looking good, you lost some weight. No, that's not it. It comes to a place of doing partnership in serving together, in partnership in supplicating together and partnership in serving God through, sacrifice, through sacrificially and even going through suffering together. I want you to listen to me. Just get someone to pray together with you and see how God knits your heart together. Just go on a ministry trip together, mission trip together, serve, maybe serve someone in need together, go to a household where there is a need and start to minister together. See how God knits your hearts. And that is the richness of this word koinonia. It comes back to the place of partnership. So when Paul is thinking about how he can be joyful, when you and I think about how Paul can be joyful in the midst of suffering, how can Paul be joyful in lockdown? The first thing is he's going through in his mind the good memories and secondly, the partnership. And therefore, he's praying with joy and we are, he's thanksgiving to the Lord for their partnership. Hallelujah. Secondly, I want you to pay attention to this. The anticipation which was personally encouraging. Verse 6. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I want you to pay attention to this. I'm sure of this. In other words, Paul says this. I'm confident of this. I'm assured of this. I'm anticipating this. I'm expecting this. What is his expectation? His expectation is this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day, in the day of Jesus Christ. I want you to pay attention to in the day of Jesus Christ. When he mentions the day of Jesus Christ, there's a difference between the day of the Lord and the day of Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, when you read books like Joel, when the Bible says the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord is a day of judgment. It's the judgment upon the world, the wrath of God upon the world. But when it says the day of Jesus Christ, it's the day of deliverance. It's the day of salvation. It is the day where believers will receive their reward and their ultimate salvation. So I want you to think about this. So here he says, he who began a good work. What is Paul confident of? That God had begun a good work on that day when he moved him from Asia to Europe. What started with the first Asian sales lady, what started with one convert, God says, he who began a good work in you, 
he is able to bring it to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. I want you to pay, pay attention to two things. One, it is, it is the preservation of God. In verse 6, it is about the preservation of God. What it means, the preservation of God. It is God who brings conviction, isn't it? It is God who brings conversion. And it's God who brings the completion. I want you to think about this. It is God who brings the conviction of sin. Holy Spirit is the one that brings conviction of sin. Even when Paul is preaching, it is the Holy Spirit that convicts their heart. Not only does he convict their heart, he also converts their soul. Their soul receives conversion from being, being, being a person under the wrath of God to moving into the, from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Now living under the love of God. Hallelujah. What a joy it is. That conversion is brought by the Holy Spirit. Not only that, he says, if he is the one who convicted you and converted you, he will be the one who also bring you to completion. In other words, he's the one who completes the work. Hallelujah. In other words, it's the preservation of God. Now, just because this is God's, it is God who does the work in you, doesn't mean that you don't do anything. You persevere with God. And that's the second thing I want you to pay attention to. You persevere with him. How? You persevere with him when he is beginning the work in you. You know, when you are learning how to hear him, you are learning how to obey him, you are learning how to be sensitive to him, you are learning how to let go of the way of the world and to embrace the way of the cross. You're letting go what it means to put your flesh to death and, and to embrace life in the spirit. It, it, you got to learn and he's chipping away that old nature of you and the old ways in which you relied upon. And now he's bringing you into this new things and you got to learn to persevere with him. That's why sometimes he takes you through painful, necessary journeys. And that necessary journeys are not to destroy you, but to develop you, to refine you. And you got to allow him to do that. And how do you do that? You persevere with God. In those situations. So I want you to capture these two things. That's Paul's assurance. His confident expectation. And his anticipation is. That God is at work in you. And he knows. That's the reason for his joy. Thirdly. You, I want you to capture this. The association. Which was personally enduring. Paul found joy. In the association. He talks about. He remembers the relationship. That he has with them. And how that relationship was endearing to him. Look at this in verse 7. It is right for me to feel this way all about you. Because I hold you in my heart. I want you to circle that. I hold you in my heart. Because in the Greek you can actually say this. Because you hold me in your heart. In other words, the Philippian church hold Paul in their heart. At the same time, Paul also says, because I hold you in my heart. And he says, for you're all partakers of, with me of this grace. You're partakers of grace. This is the grace not for salvation, but a grace for ministry. And he says, we all have this same grace. We are partaking of the grace. And in this grace, you, I hold you in my heart. In both in my imprisonment and in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. Verse 8, he says, For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all. <laughs> Here's a pastor talking about his church. And he says, how I yearn for you. When I think of all of you, I pray with joy. And now I'm yearning to see all of you with the affection of Jesus Christ. I want you to circle that word affection. It is a very rich word again. It is a word called splakna in the Greek. And the word splakna, it means inward parts. In the Old Testament, it is translated as bowels. In other words, it's the, it's the word that is so rich for inward parts. So I, and the first thing he says is, the reason why he is, that they are so dear to him, and the reason why he feels this way is because he relates with splakna. Now, this is a word that Paul uses only when he writes to people that are so dear to him. And this is what he says in Philemon, verses 7, 12, and verse 20. Three times he uses this one word, splakna. He says, I derive my joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts, which is the splakna of the saints, have been refreshed. It's the Greek word, anapao, through you. When we studied Philemon, we looked at it in detail. 
Look at verse 12. He says, I'm sending you my very heart. In other words, I'm sending you my very emotions, like bowels, inward parts. I'm sending you something that is so dear to me. And then in verse 20, he says, refresh my heart in Christ. Do you know that when people, when you think of people and when you're with people, does it refresh you like that? Do you really have that kind of a deep affection for one another? The Lord says by, through with your love that the world would know that you are my disciples, isn't it? Your love for one another. But here Paul takes it even deeper. In, in recently, one of the conversations we were having with a pre-believer in our place, and we are reaching out to him through this season, and he asked this question, every time I come here, and have meals with you guys. I always wonder. Why are you showing me so much love? You have become a family to me. And I really value this. And it brought tears to my eyes. Because that is how it should be. In the gospel. Isn't it? That in the gospel we have a family. The church is not just an organization. It is an organism. It is, it's a family of God. And here in that relationship, we need to have that bond of affection. Look at how Paul writes about his church in Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 8, he says this. He uses that word, so being affectionately desires of you. We were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our very self, ourselves. See, you can share the gospel from a distance, but you have to share yourself where you are sacrificially sharing. You're not just sharing the gospel, but you're sharing your life. You're investing your life sacrificially because you had become very dear to us. And that's the key. Because you have become very dear to us. I pray that the Lord will knit our hearts like that. I pray that the cell group, the life group that you belong to, the small group that you belong to, that you and the leader and the leaders and the, and the members, there will be such a unity, there will be such a bond of affection that you become dear to each other. That's why in this house we have this philosophy that, you know, we want people who come in as guests in our church will graduate to become friends with us, but ultimately they will become family that is so dear to our hearts. I want you to listen to me carefully. That is the first thing that he says. He found joy in relating to them with splatna. The second reason why he found joy here is he also says, I pray for you for sagacity. I request for sagacity. What is the praying for sagacity? Sagacity is the word for discerning love. A love which is filled with knowledge and discernment. Look at this in verse 7. I have derived, sorry, in verse 9. And it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. See, many times when you read this, you look at this text and you say, he's, Paul is saying that the love should abound more and more. But where does the more and more come into play? It is not attached to the love, actually. This translation has a comma there. Love may abound more and more, comma, with knowledge and all discernment. Actually, the more and more refers to the knowledge and discernment. Let me explain. I love my wife, but the love that I have for her, the love that I have for her today, has definitely increased in two levels. It's increased in understanding and it's increased in discernment, isn't it? Because when I first met her, I fell in love with a beautiful girl. Uh, on the 16th day, she proposed to me and I said yes. And in this, that love that I had for her then, I still have that same love. I still look at her with a twinkle in my eye. And I'm like, wow, she, she's, she's my, she's my uh, love of my life. It's true. But I've now increased in knowledge. How? Now I know what she likes, what she doesn't like. Now I know what she prefers. Now I know how does she want me to help her. So that, that love has now has layers and layers of knowledge attached to it. And now because of that, I've also become discerning in how I love. And that is exactly what Paul says. When you love somebody, you've got to grow in knowledge and also in discernment. You know, you will probably hear this in the world being talked about. Love is blind. 
No, love is not a, a emotional sentimentality, uh, you know, as emotional sentiment that where you don't use your brain, you just use your heart. No, no, no. You got to love the Lord with all your heart, with all your mind. We need to think even in our love for one another. That is the most, that's the most important thing Paul is praying for them. He says, I pray for you and I request God for sagacity in your life. Why? I want you to increase in knowledge. In other words, I want your love to be informed by knowledge. And I want your love to be directed by discernment. Why is this important, Pastor? Let me give you this. Why is it important? Imagine if you're walking down the road and you see a man in a pig's pen. A young man, handsome man. Once upon a time, he was from a very rich family. He ran away with all the wealth of the father. And now he has lost everything. And he's finally in a pig's pen and he's eating pig's food. If you look at that man in your heart, you'll find there is an emotion of compassion, maybe kindness. So what do you do? Oh, I don't want you to eat this. I know your father. I know the kind of family you come from. You should not be eating food like this. So let me cook something for you. And I cook a nice meal and I bring it to him. And I bring it to him out of what? Human kindness. But I want you to listen to me. The worst thing it can happen for a prodigal son who is staying in a pig's pen is for someone to feed him food. Why? Because if you act out of human kindness, you may truncate the work that God is trying to accomplish in his life. Listen to me carefully. There's a big difference between human kindness and divine compassion. Human kindness is motivated by, oh, I see a need, I want to meet that need. Divine compassion is, God, I want to follow what you're saying to me and still be moved with compassion and do as God says. That's why it is important. As a pastor, I have to learn to grow in, 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 in divine compassion, not just in human kindness. Human kindness, is, it's a fruit of the flesh. But divine compassion is the fruit of the spirit. It comes from love, joy, and peace. Otherwise, you will be loving and kind to people you want, but some people you won't. But a divine compassion will also make you show kindness even to your enemies. And that is why we love with all knowledge and discernment, knowing what God is doing and then partnering with him and to do it. This is something that you and I have to do. When you bring people closer to you in your life, you know that there are people who will cause pain in your life. That's why sometimes people who have gone through a painful season, a painful episode in their life with someone, maybe a man broke their heart. And they will say, I will never trust any man. They build up a wall. And they build up a wall because they don't want to go through that same painful experience again. But what God does is, God gives you the same love, but this time with knowledge. This time with discernment. So that now you're, you're wiser in the way you choose who you bring closer into your life. It's important for us. That's why love should abound more and more with all knowledge and with discernment. I look at the example of Jesus. Jesus prayed for the disciples whom he's going to choose as apostles. They're going to spend time with him night and day. He's going to bring them and live with them and, and feed them and, and, and walk with them and talk with them and share his life with them. You know what he did? Before he chose those 12 people, he went and prayed all night. The reason he prayed all night is because one of them will eventually betray him. One of them will eventually deny him and one of them will eventually doubt him. And that's the kind of people that you sometimes, they come around you. But at the same time, you got to learn to come and love the Lord and love them with that love that is growing in knowledge and also in discernment. So catch this church. You and I are called to love people, but love with discernment. As a pastor, I, I became a pastor at a young age here. As a newly married couple, leading members who are much, much older than us. And one of the painful experiences of life is that you, and, and I'm a person who loves people and trusts people 100% immediately. But over the course of my journey as a pastor, God had helped me to develop an amber light, a sensitivity to his promptings, to walk in that wisdom, to recognize, oh, this person is carnal. This person has that, that, that uh, divisiveness. This person is, has a, a hidden agenda. This person is a gossip. This person will be a trouble. And this is, this is something that over the years, you, there is a check in your spirit. And you go before God 
and you process that and you still love them, but you love them with knowledge and with discernment. Hallelujah. And this is what Paul says here. And he says, I'm praying for you. And the reason why you need to grow in this, because the result of this is found in verse 10. He says, I want you to reach for spiritual maturity. Look at him, verse 10. He says, I want you to pray. And this, the reason why we do it is because I want you to grow in spiritual maturity. So that, so that is the word for result, purpose. You may approve what is excellent. What is what is excellent? Excellent is you and I, we know that we are not struggling between choosing what is good and what is bad. What is right and wrong. Sometimes it is a choice between what is wise and unwise. What is loving and unloving. What is the right thing to do? What is the godly thing to do? So I want you to listen to me carefully. So you and I, we need to know how to approve that which is excellent. So, so that approve what is excellent so that be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Be pure and be blameless. The word pure here is the word sinisera, right? Sincere. In another translation, it says sincere. What is sincere? A person is sincere if they are authentic. You know, in the olden days, they go to buy pot, uh, pottery, and those pots, if they have a crack, usually the seller will try to mask it by putting wax on it. So the only way you will buy a good pot, an authentic pot, is that pot should have no wax. So how do you test it? You lift it up and you do the sun testing. When the sunlight falls on the pot, you can see where there is a crack. And that is what they call, without wax is, without wax is sine sera, sincere. And that's what Paul says here. I want you to be pure in your love for people. Know with knowledge, with discernment, but you can still love them purely, sincerely. Later on in the chapter, he will talk about how people do ministry insincerely. And here he says, you can be genuinely concerned about people. You can approve what is excellent. You can be pure in the way you conduct your life. And not only that, you'll be blameless. I love that word blameless because it is not that we are without fault. We are people, men and women of clay, with a fleet feet of clay. But this is the reality. You may fall into sin. You may fall into a mistake. But can I humbly say this? Don't stay there. It's one thing to fall into sin, another thing to caught in sin where you're struggling and unable to let go. But finally, living in sin where you don't even have a desire to come out of it. Here the Bible is very specific. Be blameless, meaning be free from blame. In your, in your journey of life, be free from blame. So how can I be free from blame? The only way I can be free from blame is if I come back to the Savior and be repentant of my sin and apply the work of salvation, apply the gospel into our lives, apply the blood of Jesus and be cleansed from all unrighteousness. Therefore, as a result, I can be blameless. And here he says, so that you would approve what is excellent, pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Be filled with the fruit of righteousness. What is the fruit of righteousness? It's the, right, it's the fruit that righteousness produces. You and I are not righteous because of our works. We are righteous because of what Jesus did. And when you believe that and apply that into your life, you become filled with the fruit that righteousness produces. And that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So finally he prays. And everything that Paul always prays results for the glory and the praise of God. So can I give you three things to write down? This is what Paul is praying for them. And this is what probably you should pray for your family too. One, that they have a blameless life. Number two, that they have a fruitful life. Number three, that they have a God-glorifying life. But all these things is not just because of your own self-effort. I want to point that verse again in verse 11. Through Jesus Christ. I think it's in verse 10 or verse 11. That comes through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ. Can I give you four things to write down? It's not in my notes, but I want you to take it down. Four movements that I see in discipleship. Movement number one, through Jesus Christ. Movement number two, for Jesus Christ. Movement number three, with Jesus Christ. And movement number four, in Jesus Christ. Let me repeat that. Through Jesus, for Jesus, with Jesus, in Jesus. You are saved through Jesus. The fruit of righteousness is produced in your life through Jesus. And you are saved for Jesus. You are not saved to, so that you can continue on your carnal life. 
You're saved so that you will live a crucified, a consecrated life, an uncompromised life. Isn't that right? You are saved for him. You're saved through him. You're saved for him. Thirdly, you are saved to be with him. You and I, every single day, we journey with Jesus so that we can grow in intimacy with him. We follow him. We learn from him. We love him. We serve him. We become more and more like him. So, in other words, being with Jesus, that comes out of a desire for intimacy. So you're saved through him. You're saved for him. You're saved to be with him and journey of life. And finally, everything is found in him. Your life is found in him. Your satisfaction is found in him. Your security is found in him. Your, your, your significance is found in him. And your self-worth is found in him. Everything that you want for life and godliness is found in Jesus Christ. I love this phrase, in Christ Jesus. Because Paul will use that in this gospel. En Christos in the Greek. He will use it at least 10 times. And this is, that's why this, this book is so gospel-centered. So I want you to capture this church as I bring it to a close. What was the reason for Paul's joy? Because Paul found joy in three things. Paul definitely found joy by uh, supplication. The supplication which was personally enriching. The anticipation which was personally encouraging. And Paul found joy in the association which was personally enduring. So where do you find joy? See, Paul found joy in the gospel. Everything that he writes here is about the gospel. Now, you may ask this question, but pastor, what is the gospel? Can I give you three things to write down about the gospel? One, gospel is a message to receive. It's a message to believe. It's a message to believe. A message about a person who came to die for you, and you need to believe that message. Secondly, it is a person to receive. Jesus Christ, to receive him as my Lord, my Savior. Thirdly, it is a life to live. That you're not just going to live your life void of God, but put God into the equation. You now live with Christ. You now live in Christ. You now live, depend upon him. And through Christ, you bear the fruit of righteousness. So everything is found in him. So this is the key. It's a, it's a message to believe and a person to receive and a life to live. That's the gospel. But this gospel, you need to acknowledge that you are a sinner and you need Christ Jesus because God who loves you sent his only son Jesus to die for you. And when you believe in the work that Jesus did, the life that you could never live, he lived and the death that you deserved, he died. And when you believe in his work and when you believe in the person of Jesus and the work that he did on the cross and you receive it into your life and you apply it personally to yourself, what happens is the Bible says you become a child of God. You become born again. You are now transferred from the kingdom of this world into the kingdom of God. Hallelujah. And that is what you and I are called for. That we are rejoicing in the fact that a God who loves me sent his son to die for me. And because of the message that I believe, because of the person I have received, I am called to live a life in that gospel. And that is what brings joy. And that is what brought joy to Paul. You know, this is the reason why there is joy even in heaven. Look at Luke chapter 15 and verse 7. The Bible says that because of one sinner who repents, there will be greater joy in heaven. One sinner. So if you make that decision today to trust in Jesus... To believe in the work that Jesus did was for you. And you receive Jesus as Lord and Savior in your life. And you now want to live the life like Jesus. Depending upon him. With him and in him. The Bible says, then there is much rejoicing in heaven. So can I humbly say this? Where is joy? Where do you find joy in this lockdown in your life? What, is, what will bring joy to you? You may say, but pastor... I'm going through such painful experience right now. Can I humbly say this? Paul went through worse. Next week we will be talking about some of the sufferings that Paul went through, that he endured, but he still found joy in God. Would you please consider this? Give your life to him, that through him you can be saved. And in him you will find everything you need. But you recognize that your life is not meant to live for yourself, but you live for him and you live with him every single day. 
that is the hope of the gospel. That is the partnership that we have in the gospel. And my prayer is that you... Thank you for listening to our message. We pray that God's word spoke to your heart and gave you an inspiration and encouragement. If you are truly blessed by this, would you take a moment to leave a comment or give us a rating on the Apple podcast service? Not only that, take an opportunity to share this on social media platforms so others who are in similar situations may be encouraged with the Word of God. We love you. If you want to connect with our church, go to connect.idmc.com.au and share with us where you're from, what you're doing, so that we can keep you in our prayers before the Lord. God bless you. 